Yemunla, you're listening to Karukeramo EV, Karukeramo, the English version. Karukeramo is a podcast about the representation of the Caribbean in cinema and television. I'm your host, Patra M, and today I'm presenting you my guidebook on the representation of slavery in French cinema and television. It's a six-part series, and this is episode four. Presently in Carucaramo Ivy, I presented you steps one, two, and three of my guidebook on the representation of slavery in French cinema and television. Step one was the importance of temporal contextualization. Most films and series about slavery are set in the 19th century. And in French cinema and television, the narrative is centered only on the late 18th century and the first half of the 19th century, which means the narrative around slavery doesn't cover how the system began and how it collapsed. Step two was the importance of special contextualization. The fact that films and TV shows are never specific about Europe being the place leading the transatlantic trade creates a distance and a lack of awareness on why our world is the way it is. Step three was about how these films and series struggle to humanize black people. Now it's time to talk about the dominating social group in the colonies and the question is how to humanize white people. Before I go any further, I think it's important to talk about how the language we use shapes our approach to a situation. The use of specific words can amplify or minimize a situation. As you all know, English isn't my first language, so feel free to point out to me if my thinking on the word slavery is off. In my French episode, I mentioned that we use the word slavery when what we are actually referring to is slaverism. The word slavery in French is esclavage, and it's a state of being. It can be applied to one person or a group of people. However, When you refer to the system, like I do in this special edition, then you should use the word esclavagisme, which would be slaverism in English. The ism at the end shows that it's a system, and I realized while I was making this podcast that the fact that I keep using the word slavery is me being conditioned not to see the system. I googled the word slaverism and I only found it in alternative online dictionaries. Then when I looked up the word slavery, the definition would either say it's the state of being a slave or it's the practice of having slaves, but none of these definitions use the word system. So again, don't hesitate to point out to me another word in English to describe slavery as a system. Now, 
With that said, let me reiterate that this special edition is about the representation of slavery in the Americas as a system and not just as a practice or as a state of being. And if you look at it as a system, then you must look at every group involved. The first storytelling strategy is to make African people share the responsibility of implementing the slave trade. Yes, slavery existed in Africa before the Atlantic slave trade began, but slavery existed in Europe too, it existed in Asia and in the Americas. However, historians agree on the fact that the European colonizers took the slavery system to industrial level on a short period of time. Films and TV shows with sequences taking place in Africa always make sure to give us at least one scene where the black character gets captured. It's a trope used in Amistad. By the way, I said in a previous episode that I didn't recall specific elements of Amistad. Truth is, I only watched this film once when it was released in 1997, so I was around 10-11 years old. It wasn't until I had to work on this episode that I realized that it was a traumatic experience for me. I saw this film in a movie theater in Guadeloupe. I wasn't mentally prepared for the emotional impact of seeing enslaved black people that could have been my own ancestors. But yes, you can find clips on YouTube. There is a capture scene in Amistad, there is one in Roots, there is one in the Book of Negroes, there's one in the opening credits of French miniseries Bitter Tropics. Although the drawing style makes it ambiguous and, and the focus is more on the act of selling human beings to the white colonizer. And there's also a capture scene in French documentary slash fiction Ebonywood. All these examples from fictions of different countries have one thing in common in the representation of this trope. It's always African people capturing other African people. You might see a white person in the background, but the characters putting on the chains on the wrists and around the neck of the black captives are black themselves. And in Ebony Wood, not only do they show the capture scene, but they also show the scene where the black king accepts to sell the captives and he shoots one of them just to test out the gun he just acquired from the white colonizer. Doesn't this image of this king showing cruelty toward his own people, isn't it a way to feed into the quote-unquote African people sold off their own brother's narrative? I can come up with an explanation about why this scene was necessary. I don't I just don't get it. Anyway, my point is, this capture trope is always about the action of African people and there is never a scene where we see the white colonizers discussing their expedition to West Africa. Do you see how imbalanced the representation is? If you give no temporal contextualization like I explained in episode 1, if you give no geographical contextualization like I explained in episode 2, the narrative you create doesn't depict slavery as a system. If you want to depict slavery as a system, you should 
depict every group involved to make the system work. In Ebony Wood, the man who sponsored the expedition is only present through a voiceover and some random portrait. We know that Yanka and Toriki, the lead black characters, are fictional, but I have no idea if the family name for the sponsors is fictional too. However, if we don't get to see the sponsor, we get to see his grandson, who is barely a teenager. It's his first time going overseas. He's there to learn the family business of trading slaves. And this young boy shows kindness to one of the black girls held captive on the on the ship. And this is the second storytelling strategy to humanize white characters, representing them showing kindness against the cruelty and the oppressiveness of slavery as a system. This representation can be with a second lead character, and this character would be what we would call today a good ally. That's what British miniseries and films usually do when they have abolitionist white characters, but the long song miniseries might be a turning point in the representation of these kind of characters. So sorry if this is a spoiler. Remember, the story takes place around the emancipation in Jamaica in the early 1830s. Robert Goodwin starts out as an abolitionist with great speeches about freedom and yet when the ex-enslaved people refuse to get overworked. His mind switches in just a few days and he uses violence to try and maintain slavery on his plantation. It's very rare we get to see the process of how a white character steps into the slavery system because he wants to use it for its own benefit. The representation is usually black or white, no pun intended. For white characters, there's no gray area. You either get the cruel for no literally no reason white character that behaves truly like a monster or you get the naive and innocent but powerless white character. In Bitter Tropics, François, the brother of the white lead female character, becomes a priest at some point. So not only he's a good ally and tries his best to live up to his ideals, of equality among human beings. He's also a reminder that the church also played a role to allow slavery to be implemented as a system. But that's another issue for another day. The religion angle when talking about slavery is always a sensitive issue because then you can't avoid talking about morals and beliefs. So it's easy to understand that cinema and television wouldn't use this approach. It's difficult to have a debate on the fairness of God. It's easier to represent the justice of men trying to fight slavery. This is the main storytelling strategy of Ebony Wood. Remember that the story takes place in the years in which France made the transatlantic slave trade illegal. So technically, the government of France 
had already taken a step into the right direction, but every white character of the film shows how the system kept living on, on individual initiative. So in this film, France can be responsible for the situation. This film shows how France tries its best to make sure that the law gets applied. And that's exactly what we see with the character of the judge, Juston, who is investigating to reveal the mistreatments given to the enslaved black people in Guadeloupe. It turns out that this character was based on real-life Juge Juston, who did investigate in Guadeloupe a bit later than the years shown in Ebony Wood, and his work helped the abolitionist movement in France. He isn't someone the official narrative remembered, but thanks to this film, he is now back into the narrative, although the film kind of tones it down a little bit. In real life, Judge Juston actually got suspended because he went against the habitation owners and tried to limit their cruelty toward their slaves. And in the film Ebony Wood, he goes back to France after he's done investigating, but the way he presents it, it's like he was just on a trip, on a work-related trip, but it was not like he was actually sent back to France. Anyway, this representation of justice trying to fix a crooked system is common. This is also basically the plot of Amistad. You see it also in the underground miniseries with the opposition between plantation owner Tom Macon and his brother John, who is a lawyer and a spy for the abolitionist movement. This is the representation you see in the Book of Negroes when Appleby, Aminata's ex-owner, lies to a judge to bring her back to his plantation. She is saved just in time by her current owner, Lendo, whom she had managed to escape from a few months before. And the current owner lets her go to pay off his moral debt to her. The representation of a white character using justice to fix the unfairness of slavery doesn't happen in Bitter Tropics. Théophile Bonaventure, the habitation owner, isn't a gentleman. He didn't inherit his habitation. He's more of an adventurer who started out with nothing, who was willing to do anything to get rich, and he succeeded. But no matter how rich he is, he still has this adventurer mentality. He only thinks about himself and his own interest. So Théophile Bonaventure isn't considered a good man anyway, so it's not out of character for him to be violent. The paradox here is that his humanity appears when he follows the rules of the Code Noir. The Code Noir was created in 1685 and it dictated the rights and duties of masters and slaves in the colonies. So if Théophile is violent while still following the rules of the Code Noir. He still can be considered a ruthless master from a moral perspective, but can he be considered a ruthless master if he respects the legal boundaries 
given to him to apply violence on his slaves. That's a very ambiguous white character because he enjoys the system. He wants to maintain it, but he's still an outsider in the dominant group. For now, most fiction stay on a Manichaean representation of white people during the slavery days. Either the white characters take advantage from the system and want more and more of it, regardless of the cruelty they show. Either the white characters are powerless and cannot change the situation. This is the most sensitive aspect of the representation of white people. How can we comprehend that someone with good morals and a good sense of justice would accept slavery and do anything to maintain it? François, the priest and ally in Bitter Tropics, discovers slavery in the first episode. He's horrified. One of his first lines is a question to Amide, an enslaved character. So François asks, why don't these black people run away? And this question is the only perspective shown in all these films and series. They never really ask the question the other way around. Why didn't François ask, how come his people treat other human beings so bad? How come they let a system like this happen? Historians give us the answer, but fiction still won't talk about it. Fiction won't show us the process of these white characters making the choice to perpetuate the system, except, like I said, for the long song. I only saw it once. It was in the underground miniseries. There's this scene mid-season. You have Tom Macon's son, he's like eight or nine, and then you have the biracial son Tom Macon had with Ernestine, a house slave. So the two boys are around the same age. At the beginning of the series, they're quote-unquote friends. They are playmates. And then there's this one moment when they both realize that one of them is white and the other is black. They realize that one of them is the master and the other one is his property. And there's no turning back after this sudden realization. The fact that these characters are children makes this scene even more powerful. This scene shows how the way we perceive others is something taught since childhood. It doesn't happen just like that when we adults. And there's one category of white characters. It's the white women who are slave owners. Their representation is a way to analyze the complex and ambiguous dynamics between white people and black people in films and series about slavery. And this is what we'll talk about in the next episode. Thank you for listening. Make sure you subscribe. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at Caricéramon. Don't hesitate to share the podcast around you. You can give me five stars on Apple Podcast to give Caricéramon more visibility. See you next week. Ciao,